Welcome along to another edition of Coronavirus Update. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined by a rather croaky sounding Greg Lance Watkins. He's been a little bit under the weather with a cough of some sort. We don't think it's connected to the virus and he's okay in himself. So we're going to battle on as best we can for the next 40 minutes or so. And we're going to look at various aspects of all that's gone on in the last week. How effective has the uh, the shutdown been? Are people following the instructions? We're going to look at Rishi Sunak's announcement to help the self-employed. We're going to look at the impact devolution has had on the virus and how that has hampered a coordinated response. And we ask about these testing kits and how useful are they really, bearing in mind we don't know whether you can get the virus more than once. Do stay with us. Greg, I'm going to begin this week by telling a short story. Um, On the 2nd of January this year, I attended a football match at the Liberty Stadium in Swansea uh, between Charlton Athletic and Swansea City. And the reason I was there is a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, is uh, a Charlton fan. In fact, it's James Easton who does podcasts on the Talk Podcast platform with me. And he came to stay and he said, oh, do you want me to get you a ticket as well? And I went with him to Swansea. And before the game, we were having a drink in the bar below the away supporters end. And he pointed out a guy to me, a guy by the name of Seb Lewis. Um, And he said, that man there, Seb Lewis, has not missed the Charlton game for, I think, 22 years. It was a stretch of well over a thousand matches. And I said, "Okay, yeah, uh, good on him. You know, he's clearly a very passionate man about this. Anyway, that man, Seb Lewis, he's two years older than me, 38. On Wednesday of this week, he died from coronavirus in London, hospital in London. Uh, He had asthma. And that was an underlying condition that didn't help him. As recently as this time last week, he was tweeting about being admitted to hospital and being put on a ventilator. But I wanted to tell that story. I mean, Seb, as I say, he had asthma. We think he was on the spectrum autistically as well. But a very passionate man, one of life's characters. Um, This is the human effect of this tragedy. And what I'm getting at is, okay, I only saw him the once. People I know knew him a lot better than that. But this is now not just affecting old people. And I think that's an important point to make. I was unaware of um, the fact that this uh, secondhand friend of yours, so to speak, uh, had died. But I was aware that a 37-year-old had died um, and no major health complications, uh, though he was asthmatic. And I'd heard that on the news because it is very important to get across to all age groups that although this disease virus is hitting uh, increasingly those out of their 40s um, and it's on a graph which um, goes up exponentially once you get past 70, Mm. uh, it's also killing the young on occasions. A young girl of 21 was uh, killed by the virus. She had absolutely no underlying health problems. That's right. That's right. I I did read that and it's very sad. Um, We've seen the graphs on the news in the last few days. Have you got the latest figures, please? Well, at the moment, uh, at 2326 GMT, 27th of March, there were 594,039 coronavirus cases recorded and 27,217 deaths. Mm. However, 
I would like to caution heavily. These figures are becoming more and more random in their veracity, in my opinion, in that, for instance, on deaths, if you look at Germany's death rate, it is very low relative to the number of cases reported. Hmm. This it would appear to be due to the fact that in Germany, if while you're in hospital, you die of a heart attack, that is what goes on to your death certificate. The mm. fact that the heart attack was caused by the coronavirus or by AIDS or um, as a result of a motor accident, mm. it goes down as heart attack. Mm. So anyone who died of pleurisy, it will have gone down as pleurisy. Mm. Nobody actually dies of a virus. The virus causes the death. So in that, in that sense, there's a comparison to be made with AIDS, isn't there? Because what AIDS does is it weakens the immune system to such an extent that you are susceptible to all sorts of things that most people would be able to fight off. Exactly. Yeah, I, I thought so that's where you were going that, with that. The um, figures are wildly wrong. You mm. also find that the figures for many cancers, cancer deaths, are mm. very wrong uh, because an awful lot of people who have had cancer actually die of heart attacks from the stress of it. Yes, yes, that, that, that I understand as well, which brings me on to where I wanted to go next with this discussion anyway. And it's the issue. There was a saying in World War II, wasn't there? Uh, Careless talk costs lives. Be like dad, keep mum. There were lots of posters all around that sort of thing. And what the general message was, be very careful what you say in conversation, whether in written or in spoken form, because you never know who's listening. And also because misinformation could, could be very damaging in all sorts of ways. And now, obviously, that was 1939 to 45. We're in a very different era now. But I think there's also a sense that we all have to be responsible with the words we use, particularly on social media, because I've seen so many nonsense stories, so many, frankly, banal conspiracy theories doing the rounds. And I would say to people, please do not share stuff from the likes of David Icke or cranky so-called scientists or loopy, weird cults, because this sort of thing is very misleading and potentially very dangerous. And with Peter Hitchin. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm just coming on to that very point now. I have to say, I am extremely disappointed in Peter Hitchens at the moment, who is a man I've had dealing with, with for goodness grief, goodness grief of me, about, what, 20-odd years, something like that, going back to when I was still in sixth form college. I first had dealings with Peter Hitchens. Um, he and I have vaguely been in touch on and off for the last 20-odd years. I know he's written about you as well on one occasion. I'm aware of that. But I think what he's been doing on social media in the last week or so is sort of acting like a modern day Lord Hawhaw, trying to make out that this is in some way just another virus and it's just another strain of flu. And yes, he did say we do need to keep our distance and wash our hands, but he was doing that anyway. And it's no reason to make uh, crash the economy as he was putting it. But he was invited onto the talk radio drive time program the other day with Dan Wooten and was given quite a lot of time to speak on there to outline his case. And it was put to him about the situation in Italy where the, the, the figures were absolutely horrendous. And he was saying, ah, yes, but 
Italy has a lot of older people anyway, and you compare it to any strain of flu, Italy, um, there's an older demographic, and that's why these figures are so high. Well, my answer to that is very, very simple. You go and ask, and I've got family in Northern Italy, by the way, you go and ask any Italian doctor or nurse working in a hospital right now if this is a typical March day. It is not. It is far more serious and far more dangerous. And I'm afraid Peter Hitchens, very good on political history, um, very good on philosophy and things like that. On science, he's never been that good. And I'll give one example. Uh, during the 2000s, we had the case of um, a cranky scientist, I think it was Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who was saying that the MMR vaccine caused autism. And he was banging this drum for years and years, and Peter Hitchens was going along with it, and he was saying, don't give your children the MMR vaccine, whatever you do. And the, the reduction in people that taking the MMR vaccine led to a, a spike in measles cases. In the end, towards the end of the 2000s, Dr. Wakefield was completely and utterly discredited. And bearing in mind how many times Hitchens had written about it to a wide audience and a wide readership, and the amount of times he'd spoken about it on TV and radio, he should have at the very least written a piece for his paper or on his blog or both, apologizing for believing Wakefield and being taken in by him for so long. He never did that. He just brushed it under the carpet and tried to move on. So I'm afraid Peter Hitchens does have a bit of a track record in going along with cranky scientists. And again, in this, he is behaving, I think, like a modern day Lord Hawthorne, putting out a lot of very dangerous misinformation out there. I think also it's worth noting, uh, you mentioned um, Italy for your figures just then. Mm. Italy at the moment has very high figures. It's um, 86,500 cases and 9,000 plus deaths. Uh, trying to fob that all off on an elderly demographic uh, is all very well. Uh, but Japan has a much is older demographic, but only has 49 deaths. So there isn't an there is an obvious correlation, but not a verifiable correlation. Mm. And in fact, Italy is far, far more affected by a setup called One Belt and One Road, which is a system that has opened up the old Silk Road from China and accounts for why there is such a high level of uh, the virus, which it is not unfair to call it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus, because that is where the virus got into the wild, so to speak. As yeah, to be, to be clear, what you're talking about here is what we talked about in last week's podcast, which is the luxury goods industry and the sheer amount of transportation between China and Italy, particularly the area and around Milan. And Iran. Yeah, yeah. We talked about this to a certain extent in last week's podcast, but the sheer amount of air travel and then road travel between um, you know, planes landing from China and then traveling on those roads to the Milan area, is, yeah. it does go some way towards explaining this. And um, it is part of Chinese policy. Yeah, yeah. Here we are then now, we've been 
I'm not a little bit reluctant to use the word lockdown, but that's almost where we're at for about a week now. And it did seem to take quite a long time for the penny to drop with certain people. I mean, I live in a waterfront flat and as recently as Wednesday and Thursday, um, I was looking out of my balcony window and seeing groups of particularly young people, those who would normally be in school or college, gathered in groups of three, four or five. They were clearly not brother and sister. Um, just chatting away as though they haven't got a care in the world. It did seem to take a few days for people to take heed of what was going on. And we also had situations, this definition of a key worker. Yes, people have got to get to and from um, hospitals uh, to work in them, obviously. But we had situations well into the middle of this week when on the London Underground, people were packed on like sardines. And I, I think the real reason behind that was there is a certain type of Londoner who thinks that because they work in the city, they are a key worker. Whereas in reality, for the time being at least, do your work from home or not at all if you can't, if there is no other option. Right now, you are not a key worker and you should not be packed onto a tube train like a load of sardines. And again, it did take quite a few days for the penny to drop about the seriousness of this. I would agree with you. And um, I think there are big areas where it still hasn't dropped. Hmm. I, uh, as you know, live on an A road and the traffic isn't hugely reduced. Mm. Uh, there is still an awful lot of traffic going past that is quite obviously not key workers. Mm. Mm. So it's, it is taking a while to filter through. And do you think that if we go any more than another few days without it filtering through, that more stringent measures will be needed? Well, I'd like to applaud what Boris Johnson has done to date. Uh, it's all very well uh, for people who haven't got a political brain in their head uh, to say he's done it wrong. It should have been locked down on day one. Um, firstly, they didn't have the capacity to uh, pronounce or work out a way of doing that on day one. Secondly, they didn't have any supplies in place on day one. Thirdly, the public, had they been suddenly told out of the blue that they were all to stay at home, uh, would have probably uh, rebelled and it would have been a slightly revolutionary situation uh, and there could have been unrest by incrementally increasing the shutting down people learned that there was a a reason b it was being done with care incrementally and c that there was a damn good risk if they broke the rules but do you now, think now we, we know what the rules are and we've been told to follow them for a number of days the penny dropped with me very early on and i understood what it was all about but I'm talking about, you know, these city workers in London in particular who are packing onto these tube trains, certainly to the middle of this week, perhaps as recently as Friday. Uh, is it now time to say, to prick their egos a little bit and say, look, you are not a key worker for crying out loud, either work from home or not at all for the time being. It is so important we contain this virus or spread it, stop it from spreading too quickly, however you want to put it. You are not 
that important right now? I think there's a case for that. There's also, um, to put it quite bluntly, um, diseases always pick on the weakest link. In this case, it's uh, those who are older. However, there is an element of survival of the fittest. And intelligence-wise, uh, it's quite clear that the least fit are the idiots who are still traveling to and fro non-vital uh, jobs. They are also putting health workers and the many other people who have a vital role in this at greater risk than if they were actually sticking to the rules. Thank you for that. And I, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here, but this is important. Can we all please stop sharing videos of people behaving stupidly? Because we've, there were two instances. There was one I saw on my Twitter feed of, uh, it, it may not have even been in this country, it was an underground train somewhere or other, and there was a pole for putting your hand on. Some idiot was licking it. There was another instance, which they showed on Good Morning Britain the other day, and I wish they hadn't, of an absolute idiot licking the rim of a public toilet seat. And that individual subsequently got coronavirus and is now in hospital. Now, that idiot is only put himself at risk, but is putting at risk the health of the healthcare professionals in his country, which I think is the United States, who now have to look after him. So it is selfish, it is stupid, it is attention-seeking. Please do not share these stupid videos on social media. We know they're idiots, by all means say they're idiots, but do not give them the attention they are seeking by sharing these videos. That's, that's all I wanted to say on that. And moving the discussion on now to the announcement, there's one big error I think the government has made so far, and I don't know your thoughts on this because I haven't talked to you about it. Rishi Sunak the other day and his outline of packages for the self-employed, I think it would have been fairer, easier, quicker, and quite possibly cheaper to have given a very basic flat rate to anyone who's registered as self-employed, enough to cover your food and your utility bills uh, not much left over beyond that, just enough to tide you over. Because what he announced the other day is saying we're going to aggregate three years' worth of your, uh, of your returns on your self-assessment forms and what have you. It's going to take until June to administer that. A lot of people haven't got until June to administer that. And a, a very old friend of mine, someone I've known since I was four years of age, had to go self-employed for the first time in his life a matter of months ago. He hasn't got to the stage yet where he's had to submit any figures to HMRC, and therefore they've got no records of how much he earns. I think, and it, he also, by his own admission, by Sunak's own admission when he was questioned about this, there, is, uh, there are people who are going to fall through the gaps on this. And he was saying, oh, well, you can apply for universal credit, do this, do that. Wouldn't it have been easier all round if he had just said, if you are registered as self-employed, you get the basic rate. It won't be a lot, but it'll be enough to tide you over. It would have been quicker. We wouldn't have had all this faffing about until June, which is a long way off yet. And a lot of people just can't wait that long. So I, I think this has been a, the biggest error they've made so far. You're never going to please all of the people all of the time. No. It, the, the main outline here. And um, the government has been well aware for many years and... Um, the last chancellor to try and do something about it was Hammond and he came unstuck. Um, the 
number of um, slightly battered transit vans uh, with a dashboard covered in pack empty sandwich packets and uh, suppliers' invoices uh, will diminish on the roads dramatically after this has ended, um, assuming that happens in a reasonable period of time, because there are an awful lot of people who are, are earning or claim to earn under the 11,000 a year figure, and they are not claiming or they're claiming income support because they're not earning enough. And there's an awful lot of people who are effectively black economy. And it has brought them to the surface, um, squealing rather loudly about the fact that they're not going to get the handouts without a great deal more checking. When, of course, have they been making the payments that they should, with integrity, have been making in tax? They would have fitted into this system perfectly. But I'll the tell you, let me tell you something there. for nothing. Let me tell you something for nothing based on that. You're talking about um, what we've seen, actually, and this started with the David Cameron, George Osborne government, was that the um, individual allowance, the personal allowance, went up quite considerably in the first few years of that, uh, of that administration. It's now somewhere in the region of 12,000 pounds, I think. And when you take into account the amount you earn as a self-employed person, plus your perfectly legal deductions for your costs of buying equipment and what have you, there are actually a very, very large number of self-employed people who are not earning the personal allowance once your entitlements are taken into consideration and are therefore not paying income tax. There is a huge army of people in that position. I can tell you there are many journalists who are freelancers who are in exactly that position. I guarantee it. And there are also, many businesses. Yeah, it, it's, it goes on a lot because you've got your personal allowance, 12 grand. You may earn five, six grand more a year than that. So it takes you up to 17, 18,000 pounds, not far off an average salary in some parts of the country. But five, six grand of that could be legitimate expenses, which you are entitled to, which then takes you slightly below the threshold. Um, but that is completely above board. And, and the government knows, and HMRC knows, there's a lot of people in exactly that position. But then you've got like the, the young man I just mentioned, my friend, I say young, he's 36 in a few days' time, but um, he had not much choice but to go self-employed last year because of his situation. And he just hasn't had to submit anything yet because he hasn't done a year. And therefore, as Sunak himself said, he has fallen through the gap. So to me, I think that the flat rate idea would have been far better because I think too many people are going to fall through the cracks with this. And June is a long time to wait for your money. I think we're going to have to put in intervention support hmm. um, event, um, pretty rapidly. Hmm. Um, but I think they're trying to build a system that caters firstly for those who have legitimately paid their taxes and filled in things. Um, the people who uh, there seems to be a great scream about are um, people who aren't even legitimately in this country. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
who are expecting free handouts. It's exactly the same. Um, the Prince of Wales, uh, Prince Charles, uh, was thought that he might have had a positive reading and he was in Aberdeen and it complied exactly in that he and um, his wife are 71 and 72 respectively and were under the system in Aberdeen totally entitled uh, to be checked and people were being checked uh, but it was astonishing how many people were screaming their heads off that he had had a check when they knew somebody somewhere else in the country who hadn't yeah and uh, i noticed i noticed you picked up my tweet about that and you're absolutely spot on because and yet hmm. they complained bitterly about that but there wasn't a single murmur from them when a whole collection of illegal immigrants were tested hmm. yeah yeah oh, oh yeah i know there's a lot of double standards around the moment and it's an inconvenient truth for them that both charles and his wife camilla were perfectly entitled to that test under the system that's in place in Aberdeen. So you're spot on. I want to talk now a little bit about devolution and the impact that is having on preventing a coordinated and joined up approach to dealing with this. Now let's take Wales because I know it a lot better than I know Scotland. Obviously I've lived in Wales on and off most of my life. And you see, compared to 25 years ago, there would have been the health secretary announcing the policy and this is how it's going to work. We have a situation in Wales where it's been a devolved matter since 1999 and it's true to say that the Welsh government has not deviated massively from the UK government in terms of closing down shops and businesses and the, the official advice. However, let's use one example. The NHS volunteer scheme which was announced uh, at the start of the week that Boris Johnson wanted to get this thing up and running there was a target of 250,000. And then on Wednesday's media briefing, Mr. Johnson announced that 504,303 people had offered their services as NHS volunteers in that 24-hour period. But many thousands of people in Wales were ready and willing to play their part, only to discover the scheme only applied to England and that they had to look to the Welsh government for instructions as to what they should do. And put simply, in the years before devolution, this would not have been a problem, and those very same volunteers would now be days away from carrying out important work to alleviate the pressure on the NHS. And on Wednesday morning, Vaughan Gethig, the Welsh Health Minister, said that local councils were coordinating efforts for NHS volunteering in Wales, and there was not very widely read advice from the Welsh Local Government Association was that people should call their council contact centres. And that is, I'm afraid, that is about as clear as mud. So, in other words, the kind-spirited Welsh citizens who wanted to help the NHS are being asked to find out the number of their local council call centre, which is probably understaffed in the present circumstances anyway, and then wait in a queue while the staff answer calls from people inquiring about which colour bins to put out this week. And, you know, clear and coordinated, this is not. So that is one example. Another example is this database that's been created um, for on those in most need of online shopping because of their vulnerabilities in various forms. And that's been put together. But again, that applies to England only. And 
I, I just ask all mainstream journalists, you know, the people who appear in our news bulletins every night, to please make it clear in your, in your reports when these things do apply to England only. But it just goes to show, doesn't it, if this virus had struck 25 years ago, this wouldn't have been a problem. It's because of devolution that a joined up and coordinated response is now nigh on impossible. It's not just devolution that is the problem here. Uh, you may or may not have noticed that in the midst of this um, global uh, panic over health and how to cope with it, what was the Regional Assembly for Wales doing? Oh, on the 16th of March, it issued a lengthy consultation paper having already hugely damaged the NHS in Wales, they were issued a consultation paper as to what degree of compulsion should be put on members of the health service who provide the services having to speak compulsory levels of Welsh. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that while people are dying. I, and on, on the subject of the Welsh language, I have been saying for a very long time indeed that in the Welsh arts, media, civil service and higher education, to get anywhere near the top, you have to be able to speak Welsh and people are promoted well above their ability because they can speak Welsh. Speaking Welsh is not the only thing. You get the right sort of family connections help. Uh, the journalist Paul Starling wrote 20 years ago in the Welsh Daily Mirror, that Wales does seem to be run by a network of about 50 families, as he put it. And I think Paul got that one spot on. But it goes, it goes beyond that. We, we, we see in Wales very often, you know, the, the poor quality of the reporting on BBC Wales and so forth, how people have got where they are and been promoted above their ability because they can speak Welsh. But what we have seen in, in recent days with what's happened with the clumsy and muddled thinking of the Welsh civil service and local council officers, we are really seeing how people have got to where they are today because they are Welsh speakers and are really out of their depth. I would put it as far as criminal irresponsibility. Mm. Yep, yep. So really what we're saying then, in essence, to, to summarise this point, I think you and I are in agreement that devolution is a total nuisance at the moment. I don't know how legal it would be to suspend it. Uh, you'd have to ask someone more learned than me in the law but I just wish for the time being, at the very least, we could suspend this nonsense and have a UK-wide coordinated approach because this virus, very obviously, does not care about an imaginary line on a map. Added to that, there just aren't the skills in these Mickey Mouse regional councils mm. to handle this, mm. despite the fact that there has been an absolute huge burgeoning of jobs created um, for civil servants, particularly those who can speak Welsh. Mm. Um, their ability level is risible. Yeah, yeah, and, and we're seeing this. This has been blatantly obvious in recent days because I'm not going to go on about this because this isn't a Wales-focused podcast by any stretch of the imagination, but... For those of you who don't know Wales, we, we have increasing situations so as over the course of the last 20 years at least, where so many job applications in the civil service have said things like um, uh, Welsh skills essential or Welsh skills preferred. And 
that effectively shuts out the more than 80% of the population who have little or no knowledge of Welsh. And when you've got a country with a population of 3 million people, it's important we get the best people in the best jobs. And their effect, the vast majority of the population is shut out because they cannot speak Welsh. The, being able to speak Welsh is a passport, in effect, to getting jobs for which you are not qualified. Uh, but we could talk about this in, in a lot more depth in, a, in another podcast. But I'm going I'm to say something far, far more optimistic now because we've been a little bit gloomy so far. I'm going to say something far more optimistic. Do you know what, Greg? This podcast is far more popular than you realize. Do you want to know why? Um, because we tell it like it is. No, no, right. This is absolutely true. Thursday evening, eight o'clock, I went to put the bins out right and the whole street was lined up and they started applauding me. Good heavens. <laughs> I am, of course, referring to eight o'clock Thursday night. The whole country applauded our NHS staff, didn't they? Uh, yes. I think it's a pity it was eight o'clock at night. Um, when would you have done it? When would I have done it? When people could see people in the street. Um, midday on um, Friday. Or something similar. So we that it involved businesses, families, anybody who was around. Um, and it would have been more likely to have been seen by NHS workers who were off shift or those going on shift. I, th I think they all got to see it because it was covered so well by the media that. And, you know, yeah. I, I live, as I say, I live in a waterfront flat. I opened up my balcony and I started clapping. There was nothing much to see from here, but I could hear in the adjacent streets people clapping. It, it, you could hear it quite visibly all around this area. And I gather most of the country was doing the same thing. And but were it, they being politically correct and clapping in Welsh? <laughs> You don't hear Welsh spoken very often around here, I can assure you of that. I think I've counted once in the last six months I heard it. But yeah, it, do you know what I think we should do? Okay, we can have an argument about what time of day it should happen, but once a week on a Thursday for the foreseeable, repeat this gesture, because I do, I do think it boosts morale, and it should be for the NHS staff, yes, certainly, but also uh, care workers, uh, the armed forces, supermarket shelf stackers, delivery people, everyone who's doing their bit and in all fairness politicians who are acting responsibly yes and i i would even despite my differences with richie sunak this week i would give boris johnson's government an eight or a nine out of ten for the way they've handled it and while we're on that subject i'd like to wish the prime minister and england's health secretary and, and also the chief medical officer a speedy recovery from the coronavirus which they've come down with um, it, it did look, I saw some footage today of um, just the other day in the House of Commons, Boris Johnson did his bit of Prime Minister's questions, then he walked past various other people who were on the front bench, and then he had a quick word with Speaker Lindsay Hoyle. You know, all sorts of things go through your head when you realise he was contaminated at that time, about where we may be um, a, a few days from now in that sense. And yeah, he, he's self-isolated. But I, I just like to wish them all the best. I'd like to finish off this podcast, if I may. By talking about these testing kits, maybe you can help me with this one. I, we're told that, um, that they should be available for NHS workers perhaps next week. But I think there's a, f a far more fundamental question here, and it's this, and no one can answer this. Once you've had this virus, can you get it again? And point one, can you get the exact virus again? Can you get a variant of it again if it changes in some way? 
or does it buy you three, six, 12 months immunity? Because the thinking seems to be, oh, we must test our NHS staff because then if we know they've had it, they can go back into the workplace. It is not as simple as that, as I understand it. I think that we're going to find that we're not actually dealing with one level of this virus. It may well be um, have the DNA identical, but I know people who were going down with very similar symptoms back before Christmas. Mm. And you may have noticed I have uh, a cough and a sore throat. Um, it's not very sore. It's a very dry yeah, throat. You're sounding like Barry White tonight, to be honest with you. Yeah. And um, I've had this now for just over six weeks. Now, I would submit that if it is what we had believed to be um, COVID-19, uh, it would have progressed to a high temperature and other symptoms. Mm. It hasn't progressed. Yeah. And I would believe, inclined to believe, that it is just an irritating sore uh, or dry throat that makes... Uh, gives my voice a, a croaky tone to it. And um, occasionally I have a bout of coughing. Um, mm. I have nothing else wrong with me. And after six weeks, I don't think it has any connection with COVID-19. However, I do believe that there are degrees of uh, the COVID uh, or coronavirus that may well be going around, some with very, very little effect mm. and others with a greater effect. Um, strong part bits of the virus and weak bits of the virus, for lack of a, um, a more technical explanation, which is way beyond me. So I wonder whether testing is going to make a great deal of difference. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree because there's just so much we don't know. Final point, please. We barely understand this. The majority of people are still wandering around saying, well, it's just like flu. It's not remotely like flu. It's not even the same thread of disease virus. It is a virus that came out of a research establishment in Wuhan in China, where it was being worked on. They have something like 17,000, correction, 1,700 uh, different viruses that they're working on in that particular establishment. I also understand that there is cooperation between the Chinese and the French in the running of the Wuhan Research Lab. And in 19, sorry, in 2017, uh, the Americans stated they were concerned about the Wuhan laboratory as to whether it actually had sufficient security, biosecurity, to be handling the level and severity of viruses that were in the establishment, uh, particularly as it was located 
in a highly populated area and only a few hundred yards from a large wet food market, which was in the open air. The virus initially, we believe, came from Canada, from a laboratory in Winnipeg, where it was being worked on, and it was uh, purloined in some manner from there by the Chinese and introduced into Wuhan laboratory. And it is quite obvious it escaped towards the end of November and the Chinese authorities failed their duty to the, the Chinese people and to the rest of the world by trying to cover it up until it was completely impossible to cover up, by which time it had spread and look at the state of the world now with over half a million people registered and probably nearer five million who actually have the virus. Yeah. All because they didn't announce immediately and let everyone know. Yeah, and I think that when we get back to some form of normality, whenever it takes, I think we need to ask questions such as, look, if I was to say to anyone listening to this now, next time you need a new computer or a washing machine or whatever, are you willing to pay a bit more if it's made in, say, Bridgend or Brighton or anywhere rather than in China? Are these, is this knowing what we know about the regime in China and bearing in mind there are also, for example, two million Muslims in a re-education camp, as they call it. In reality, it's something far more severe than that. Are these really the sorts of people we want, we want to be? I'm not thinking, nothing against ordinary Chinese people, but as a regime, is this the sort of place we should be doing deals with and on very friendly terms with just for the convenience of getting cheap produce? But that's a debate for another day. On a final note there, we're trying to end on something cheerful. Um, I, I know the extent to, okay, you've got this croaky voice at the moment and you're avoiding going out as much as possible. How are you keeping yourself amused and entertained in these difficult times? Um, I'm not having any problem at all. Uh, I have a fairly large garden, uh, which after months of endless, horrendous wet weather and uh, prolonged cold, uh, the garden is winning hands down and leaves me with quite a lot of work to do in it. Mm. Um, I've spent the last uh, three or four days uh, repairing fence panels that were uh, severely damaged in uh, the gales recently. Mm. And uh, even when that's done, uh, I spend a lot of time on the computer posting to various, my various websites and doing podcasts um, with both Marcus and Richard and others. And um, I don't have any problem finding things to do. I also have uh, enough books that I still want to read uh, to last me another two lifetimes, and I'm 74. I'm, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it. But yeah, and you, <clears throat> you also like watching repeats of new tricks and Silent Witness and stuff like that, don't you? Yeah, that's my evening relaxation. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. 
I don't watch BBC at all. I'm just not into propaganda. Yeah, but they're both former BBC programmes, Silent Witness and New Tricks. Ah, uh, yes, BBC. but they're not part of the BBC um, programming mm. uh, in that I don't have to put up with the nauseating news from the uh, BBC mm. uh, talking down the country and um, showing off and endlessly trying to politically point score one way or the other. Mm. And so they're off my radar. Um, ITV is more or less off my radar um, for much the same reason. And the news all too often has that idiot Peston on it. And I find if he comes on, I go off. He's isolating at the moment, old Peston. But um, yeah, oh. that's, a good, that's a good place to end it. And uh, thank you very much. My pleasure and good luck to everybody. My thanks to Greg for battling on through his rather croaky-sounding voice this week. And my thanks, as always, to you for listening. Do stay safe, do please follow the official government advice, and do please spread the word about this podcast. We're getting lots of new listeners, lots of feedback. Please keep it coming. You can tweet me, I'm at Marcus Stead. And do please join us again next week, where we'll take stock of the situation once again and see where we go from here. Until then, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>